0: I'm here with Emily Albrecht from the Equal Rights Institute, and we did a show with you, and it's great to have you here. I just wanted to hear a little bit about your history, personal history, of how you got involved with this. You were raised in a devout Catholic home, went to a school that was pretty secular, and what happened?
1: (laughs) It was certainly an adventure. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Father. Um, You're right. I grew up, and I went to K-12 Catholic school, the whole nine yards, and abortion was always something that I knew was wrong but I didn't really have any good reasons for it other than the fact that that was the default. That's what I was told to believe. And so I went off to college and I didn't really have a good foundation that made me confident about being pro-life and therefore I pretty much kept my mouth shut. (laughs) Classic story to demonstrate this. It was fall of 2016 and my local pregnancy resource center that was in our town called the Norfolk Women's Center, they were hosting their annual fundraising banquet and they actually did it on my college campus. You can do that. You can rent out a ballroom at a college campus, and that's what they did. And when the pro-choice students on my campus found out that this pregnancy center was gonna be having a fundraising banquet, they managed to organize hundreds of students to just line the hallways of our whole student union with signs screaming at the mostly elderly members of the community that had come to support free resources for pregnant and parenting people in the community that's what I walked into. (laughs) Like, you should not be shocked that I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) I didn't want to tell anyone that I was pro-life until about January of my freshman year. That is when my one really good conservative Catholic friend, her name is Meredith, and she actually now works at that pregnancy center. Fasting fast, fast forwarding there. But Meredith dragged me kicking and screaming to my very first pro-life club meeting. There actually was a pro-life club on my very secular college campus, but it was basically dead. Yeah. It was being single-handedly run by one senior girl who was just doing her best. Mm-hmm. One woman pro-life style, but I mean, how much can you do when that is your campus, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so I joined the club and that spring, the three of us, literally three of us, started to try to do some stuff. Yeah. And I will be totally honest with you, every single thing we tried failed epically. I remember one week, that spring semester, we put up a hallway display. So as a student organization on campus, you can reserve a hallway in the student union and basically put up whatever you want. It's like a giant billboard essentially for you. And so we reserved one and we put up a whole display about abortion. We were super proud of it. We'd made it ourselves. It looked amazing. It was vandalized 13 times in one week. And when I say vandalized, I mean destroyed. (laughs) The entire thing has been ripped down, is just missing, is written all over. We had to reprint the entire display 13 times and put it back up Wow! out of money that was ours because we had no money as a club. So we were just paying out of pocket trying to reprint this display and put it up. What was the
0: enrollment at the school? How big a school was it? We
1: have about a 3,000 student body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we basically submitted these bias reports to our administration every single time that this vandalism would happen. And they would just go into a black hole. Like, Mm. I don't know if anyone ever read my bias reports. It was extremely frustrating. Mm. So end of freshman year comes along and that senior girl graduates, right? And so I suddenly found myself as the new co-president of the pro-life club Mm -hmm. by default because there was Mm -hmm. no one else. And Meredith became my vice president. Mm -hmm. And that summer, my super tiny leadership team and I- You didn't
0: bring your mom into this? (laughs) No,
1: I did not. (laughs) (laughs) That summer, my little leadership team and I tried to figure out what to do Mm -hmm. because it was incredibly evident that our campus needed to hear the pro-life message but that everything we had tried was not working mm. at all and so something had to change here but we really didn't know what that was right. until about july that summer between my freshman and sophomore year is when i got the email that quite literally changed my life forever it was the email it was actually from that local pregnancy resource center saying mm. hey guys we just discovered that there's this national pro-life organization called Equal Rights Institute that's dedicated to helping pro-life people actually reach pro-choice people. And I was like, wow, do I need that? Mm. And so I immediately went through Equal Rights Institute's Equip for Life course. That is our comprehensive pro-life apologetics training course online. And I realized in about two seconds that this was going to be the game changer that we were looking for. And so I took my very tiny club through that training material and we started to go out right at the beginning of my sophomore year to do outreach on the St. Olaf campus. And what I mean by that is we would set up a table, literally in our student union with a question on it. It would say, should abortion remain legal in the US? And trust me, students wanted to voice their opinions (laughs) on that question. And so we would talk to hundreds and hundreds of students Fast forward to my senior year, we've been doing this almost weekly for three years at this point, And everything about our campus had changed. I mean, the pro-life club had exploded in size. There were pro-lifers that had just come out of the woodwork. There were pro-choice people who had become pro-life and joined our club. But even more importantly than that to me is that I saw this dramatic culture shift in how the pro-choice students on our campus viewed the pro-life club. Like I cannot tell you how many conversations I had at that table that ended with the pro-choice person saying something like, you know, I, I really don't know what I think right now. Um, I need to just take a minute and process this, but I want you to know, I really respect you. Like I've never heard such an intelligent and loving pro-life argument before. And, I used to hate you. It was a miracle if I didn't walk past your table and I didn't stop and punch one of you. Someone Mm -hmm. actually said that to my face. Mm. It was a miracle if she didn't punch me. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) I don't don't really know how to answer that. I'm glad you didn't punch me. (laughs) But now I actually stopped and talked to you and I realized that you are nothing like I thought. Mm -hmm. My senior year vandalism ended. We had one vandalism my entire senior year my freshman year we had 13 vandalisms in one week
0: did anybody ever apologize for the vandalism
1: so yes actually that senior year when i had my one vandalism i submitted my bias report to administration because i am basically the queen of writing bias reports at this point <laughs> and i got a personal email back from our administration within 30 minutes apologizing we were continuing to experience vandalism, letting me know that they had already looked at the security camera footage. They had identified the student who had done it, and they were putting that student through the disciplinary process oh. in 30 minutes.
0: But no student apologized. No That's student right. apologized. Yeah. No,
1: I was not allowed to know the identity of the student who had done oh. it. But I did have several meetings at that point with the dean of students hmm. to talk about how can we have a more effective way to deal with this consistent vandalism? How can we actually help these students to have a productive outlet for the anger that they feel towards the pro-life club, help them to actually engage in our conversations? But the number of students that were even wanting to do vandalism had gone down so much because students now had an outlet to engage with pro-lifers and a place where they were getting to know pro-life people. I mean, Mm. most people in my generation, up until June, even their parents didn't remember a time before Roe v.ersus Wade. Abortion was just the law of the land to them. Right. And so it was outrageous that anyone would suggest this obvious woman's right should yeah. be taken away. You, and we were there to have conversation with them.
0: Do you think, like, Hollywood cultural elite voices, do you think that's a large part of the formation or... Even like someone said this to me before, like if they're getting a lot of, a lot of information off of social media, off of a two-minute TikTok thing of a activist pro-choice saying this, that's where they're getting their viewpoint. And do you think that's re- really where the formation happens for this, for the pro-choice?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I would say that the vast majority of pro-choice students that I talk to today don't have an exact reason that they've thought through for why they're pro-choice. What they have is slogans and sound bites that they've heard from the media, from two minute TikToks. All of those places have been feeding these ideas. And quite frankly, my table on a college campus and all the students that today I train when they go out and do tabling, usually that is the very first time pro-choice students on their campus have ever been asked to think about abortion beyond a slogan to actually explain their position. It's not even, I'm not trying to trap them in the conversation, I just ask them what they think. And that alone is something they've never had to think through before and intrigues them. They're actually excited to have this conversation because all they've ever had is the kinds of slogans that our media thrives off of.
0: Right. And like for you personally, like you watch something, is there something in particular that angers you, would it be? like a subtle thing in a sitcom or a movie or just the cool person saying this? Do you get angry or do you feel sad or or is it the politician that's just coming out and thundering, this is the way it's got to be?
1: I think that I have learned how to changle, channel the anger mm-hmm. that I used to feel towards pro-choice people into a sadness um, and I would almost say a a compassion for them. I think most pro-choice people are upset with pro-life people. They make things in the media or they say things that are derogatory towards pro-life people or making fun of them, or they, they come up with all of these ways to portray the pro-life movement. They say things really as a result of their lack of understanding of the movement and the fact that there has been so much indoctrination in our society to believing that abortion is obviously a woman's right, that I understand why they're behaving that way. And it used to make me upset. I used to think that all pro-choice people were stupid and they're all mean and they hate pro-life people. And I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think there's a profound misunderstanding of them. And so what I see when I watch some pro-choice TikToker say Uh something horrible, is I'm really sorry that that was their experience with pro-life people, that that's what they've been told to think. And I want to reach out to them in compassion. I want to be able to build a conversation with them.
0: Right. And what role does religion have in it? I mean, I I know like a lot of uh, pro-choice rallies, marches, a lot of religious people are there. Mm -hmm. And and, our faith motivates us. Equal Rights Institute is not you know, bringing a religious argument or faith argument into it. But from what you've seen, um, isn't it largely people of faith that are pro-life? I know you've, you've, but what have you seen?
1: I would say the majority of the pro-life movement mm-hmm. is definitely people of faith. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, the pro-choice movement is almost always the first ones to bring up religion. Right. Most pro-life people, the vast majority, understand that their faith, their Christian faith usually, is what makes them against abortion fundamentally, but that we live in a democracy that has a separation of church and state, Mm -hmm. and so you need more than that if you're going to legislate against abortion. You need to be able to have secular arguments, and so they utilize almost exclusively secular arguments in that kind of abortion debate space. It's almost always per-choice people that bring it up first. Now, I will also say that Gen Z, my generation, is becoming more and more atheist in the kind of pro-life space. And there has been the rise in the last few years of several very large and very successful atheist pro-life organizations that I'm honored to partner with. I am great friends with people at Secular Pro-Life, along with POW, which is the progressive anti-abortion uprising. Both of those are, Secular Pro-Life is exclusively secular. POW is mostly secular, but not entirely. Uh, And I've had the privilege to work with many of the young people in both of those organizations. And they come to their position about being pro-life very differently than I originally did mm-hmm. but I'm so glad that they're here and mm-hmm. I think that they have an special way they can reach pro-choice people because of that viewpoint. So I see the pro-life movement as actually being incredibly diverse in the kind of religious framework though right. I would still say the majority are religious, we're all coming at it from a place of secular arguments when we go into that space right
0: And I've heard it said uh, to and you pointed out to me like, Young people as a whole, I thought they were kind of more pro-life, but you you said that's not true according to polls, is that?
1: So the most recent polls I have seen is that 25 to 30% of Gen Z consider themselves to be pro-life. I don't really know. Like, I don't yeah. take that much. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe polls all that much to say that right. that's an exact number. Yeah. That's what I have seen. I do know statistically that my generation is more pro-life than my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. So there is a swing happening there. And largely I see that as being because of this new kind of progressive atheist pro-life movement that's rising up among Gen Z, where they see abortion as a piece of social justice, as a piece of one equality for all people. And so I think that's where we're seeing this swing. There are still and will always be the conservative religious groups, Mm -hmm. the conservative Catholics, and the conservative Christians who are very pro-life and obviously tons of young people fall into that category. But I think one of the reasons we see more young people than in previous generations that are joining the movement is because now they've found this other place for themselves. And Gen Z is this place where a lot of pro-life people come from different backgrounds.
0: And I, I've heard it said that I, I never thought of that, but yeah, that I could see how that would get traction, there because the uh, the social justice issues are so emphasized. You say, what about this marginalized group in the womb? But I've also this is a few years ago. I remember somebody saying an argument that appealed to young people is that abortion is mean. You know, we could connect with people <laughs> on that. You know, they can recognize it's not good to be mean. That's about as sophisticated as our ethics get. But it's like a, have you seen that resonate with people that you're talking to or?
1: I would go a step further and say what resonates for a young Gen Z atheist Mm -hmm. liberal type Mm -hmm. is more the idea that abortion is violence. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of concern about minority disenfranchised populations who are being subject to violence and seeing abortion as part of that, as basically this historical oppression of women that they would often see is now being transferred to the unborn. It's like yeah. in order for women to be liberated, we have to oppress this other group. And they see that as being horribly wrong. They want to argue for the liberation of women and for this other group to not be oppressed simultaneously. They see it as part of this equity and diversity and inclusion movement that they're pushing for in all these other right. areas. Advocating for the most marginalized in the womb is part of that to them. Yeah, yeah.
0: And what this is something that comes to my mind too, and it, it's championed by the faith, but just the dignity and the responsibility of motherhood, like the great gift of being a mother. You know, Christians especially profess this, and even though secular world, you know, just, you know, argues against this, but, you know, Christianity has, has elevated women's status. And you see it in the, in the Bible, you know, you see it in, in laws made by Christians and stuff to protect women and children from just being property or being to put to death stuff. But I always feel like, too, like that argument sometimes needs to be made about the greatness of the call to motherhood. That, yes, this is, can, you know, can be a burden. You know, the labor itself, you know, is horrible, right? right. But it's like it comes with a responsibility of self-giving. Mm-hmm. But the greatness of human life and that the woman is entrusted with, with this in a special way speaks of your dignity that God's trusting you with this. Does that get traction at all with uh,
1: <laughs> I absolutely think it does. I think that there's particularly a way in which we can think about society's lack of support for women who do choose to have children currently mm-hmm. that really appeals to the young pro-choice person because yeah. there is very much so an idea from, I would say more the generation above me, the millennials that's getting some pushback from the younger people that if you're a woman and you choose to have children, you choose to get married and you do the traditional thing, you are lesser. You are like not worthy because you didn't go off and and succeed And what you are doing, motherhood, that's not succeeding. That's not a good thing. And a lot of young people are rightfully screaming and saying, that's horrible. I think that our society needs to support women in whatever they choose, mm-hmm. the pro, the, even the young pro-choice people would say. There's been rightfully a lot of backlash in these kind of post-row days now where a lot of companies and a lot of even universities are creating funds to help their employees travel out of state to get an abortion, but they are not doing anything to help support maternity leave or right. helping to create a more pro-family environment. Right. And so even pro-choice people can and should be getting on board with the idea that if you are truly pro-choice, mm-hmm. then you as an organization should both be paying for that out-of-state abortion, helping your employee get that, and creating an environment so that if someone chooses to have a child, that's actually possible for them. Mm. You're supporting them and helping them there. And that's not something that we're seeing enough companies, enough universities doing. Yeah. And. Pro-life young people are screaming about it. And I also see some pro-choice young people screaming about it because right. there is a lack of saying that being a mother is worthy. Being a mother is something we should support and we should encourage.
0: Right. That, that's kind of the, I guess it's getting kind of another topic, but it it seems like that's the theme I often see is that it's like we're taking like these secular standards and like women, I think, are, are particularly gifted with you know, with motherhood, with personal relationships, with this ability to nurture, mm-hmm. and those aren't valued in the sec, you know, the secular society right. values achievement, accomplishment, work, money, success, and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And it seems like the very things like the feminists are really pushing is not, you know, it's like you're trying to make women men and like they can never be men, so it's always going to be frustrating, right? right. <laughs> right? So. <laughs> I will
1: never, ever forget my sophomore in high school theology teacher who said one line that is stuck in my brain forever. And maybe he got it from somewhere. I truly don't know. He probably did. But the line was that men and women are equal in dignity, but different in role. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that feminists for years have been trying to chase to make the roles the same. Yeah. make women the same as men and that—that yeah. purely by our biology isn't going to happen right. folks right. and right. so instead let's talk about how the things that women are good at the things that women are naturally gifted with those have the same value as what men can do mm-hmm. we are equal mm-hmm. but we are also different and there's nothing wrong with that yeah. and i do see many young people today standing up and saying that that right. we need to honor women and what they are able to do and not say they have to really abandon what their bodies naturally do in order to succeed in life.
0: Right. You know, in some ways, too, it's like, you know, even if you like looking at it from a worldly pers- perspective of success and everything, and even like, you know, the communists got this or are starting to get it, say, hey, we need kids. We need women to be mothers. And so they start promoting it in their weird, twisted ways, <laughs> or whatever. But it's like, it kind of hit me recently. I said, whoever has the most kids, wins. Mm-hmm. And just in terms of like, if you want to be this strong country, you know, just on secular terms, you got to have a big population. Right. If you want a strong economy, you have to have a positive population growth rate. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I heard some a secular economists actually say this. Said, well, I guess that's controversial, but he was saying, you know, the thing that cures a multitude of sins with economic failings is just growth. If you've got economic growth, you can carry more debt and have more inflation, or whatever. But if it, the economy growing, you're going to be okay. And the economy grows if you're having more people in right. the country and all this stuff. So in many ways, it's like women are at the heart of success, even in a worldly sense. Right? <laughs> but anyway, it's I thought that was a, kind of an irony. But, uh, but yeah, women are so crucial. And... And then sadly, our young young people are getting that message. Um, I also want to ask you about having these difficult conversations. What are some of the uh, you've you've read about it, but also you're in the trenches, you're in the fields you've learned from experience. Give us some bullet points about how to if someone's angry. It's a difficult conversation to have. There's a lot of emotions or tent or whatever you know, really hard beliefs involved. What do you do?
1: I would say my overarching tip is that whatever they're expecting you to do, you need to do the opposite. Let me explain (laughs) what that looks like. So if I'm on a college campus and I have a really angry student, like I can see them coming from a mile away. This happens all the time. They're coming out of that building way Mm -hmm. over there and they see my sign and they start marching towards me and I can see the anger and it just grows the closer they get to me. They walk up and the very first thing that I'm going to do is let them yell at me. Now, I'm not saying that every person needs to have a crazy amount of tolerance for this. Mm. Okay, I do. I think that's that's a gift God gave me. I have a pretty high tolerance for people being mad at me. Do
0: you come from a big family?
1: No, I'm an only child, actually. Okay. Wow. So I know that doesn't really line yeah, up with yeah. that. But I am not used to didn't have a bunch of siblings or yeah, something. It yeah. is just me. Um, but. Went from
0: a... Family of Italians, or No, nope, <laughs> no, just a little German Catholic family, really, <laughs> from <Yeah>. rural Wisconsin. <laughs> so
1: this pro student comes up, and they start yelling at me, and I just want to let them get it out. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in those few, first few minutes while they're getting it out on what my body language looks like. So usually if I'm on a college campus, I've got this table next to me, right? And so I'll like lean on the table. Sometimes I'll literally sit on top of the table. I wanna do everything I can to show in my body that I'm not in fight mode. I'm not here to go at it with them. I am just super relaxed. And then I'm gonna maintain eye contact, more or less, not like a creepy amount of eye contact, but Mm -hmm. I'm gonna look at them, I have a really relaxed (laughs) face, and I'm gonna show that I'm listening. I'm gonna do things like nod. If they say something that I agree with, if there's a piece of common ground, Uh then I'm gonna quickly be like, oh yeah, totally. Just do something to affirm that I'm I'm tracking with them. And inevitably, about two minutes in to their monologue, their like screaming monologue, (laughs) Uh they take a moment and pause. I don't know if it's actually a choice they're making or if it's something that just kind of happens under their radar, but they take a moment and pause where I can guarantee what they're expecting me to do is now to jump in and launch on my pro-life monologue. Like they were expecting me from the beginning to start screaming back at them because that's what they see in the media. So I don't do that. Then they kind of pause because they're like, ooh, I wonder if now she'll take the opening. And it's just like a momentary pause. And I don't, I say nothing. I just continue and I let them keep going. Now they're really intrigued, just like in the Mm. back of their mind. So they'll maybe go for another minute or so. And then they'll actually stop They'll take a really long pause where I am expected, it's obvious, to reply. Mm -hmm. And now they're expecting me to launch into my pro-life monologue, and so again, I don't. The very first thing they'll ever hear me say, other than maybe a yeah, sure, totally, like as I'm affirming what they're saying, the very first longer thing they'll hear me say is a clarification question about something they just said. Like kind of repeating what they said. Yes, some piece, some nugget that they just did, I'm gonna ask, a clarification question on or ask them to expand on. It's not a gotcha question, it's not a leading question. It's purely, I heard you say this, tell me more about that or help me understand, did you mean this thing? Something that shows I genuinely was listening to everything they just said and I'm really trying to understand them. And now they're really thrown off Mm. because that is the last thing they were expecting me to do was to care enough about them to listen. And so when they answer that question every time, their wall has lowered to maybe about half. Whoa. They've calmed down dramatically. They've usually stopped yelling. They've kind of relaxed their body language because now they're just intrigued by me. Like is they're it, more interested than anything else.
0: Is it mostly women that come to there or is it men? Is it, the school it is you definitely went to was, both. yeah. Yes, it was,
1: so the school that I went to uh, um, absolutely has, I think it's maybe about 60% female uh-huh, on campus, yeah. but now, that I work for Equal Rights Institute, I go all over the country. I table on college campuses everywhere. And so I've seen, it's certainly more often a female who's this upset that they're coming up really angry because often they've had some sort of personal experience with abortion, either in their own life or in the lives of one of the friends that they're really close to. But I have had men be this upset too. And getting them to just see that I care about them not only brings their wall down because that's not what they're expecting but it also from a a pragmatic perspective enables me to make a more persuasive argument because there are a lot of arguments against abortion okay i have this whole toolbox of arguments i could use Mm -hmm. and i don't think it does you any good as a pro-life person to make an argument that isn't related to the real reason they're pro-choice I would just be throwing spaghetti at a wall, like something might hit maybe, but if I take that first five minutes, if it's an on-campus conversation, or even that first entire conversation, if this is someone in my family, and I can have repeated conversations with the same person, Uh I am gonna take my time to get to know them, really understand their view, because it makes them intrigued by me, it gets their wall down, and it enables my later argument to be more persuasive. Because yeah. I can tailor my argument to the exact thing that's driving their view. You want an- to answer
0: the question they have. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which right.
1: is not rocket science. Yeah. yeah. None of the tips that I teach in terms of practical dialogue tips, yeah. how to have good body yeah. language, how to point out common ground, all of that stuff is super obvious. Yeah. The problem is we don't do it. When yeah. we get in a controversial right. conversation, where our like defenses go up ourselves. We see this person screaming at us and we just want to like spew out all the things we remember. Yeah. Because we can't. Like it's so hard to get our body to just relax and listen. Yeah. And not enter fight mode. But if you can do that, if you can hold off and keep yeah. yourself in that calm space, you're going to be able to make that positive argument that's right. going to really reach where they are. You're going to be right. able to put them in a position where their wall is down enough that the argument you say can reach them. Because I don't care how good your argument is. If their wall is up, they can't hear you. It's not going anywhere. It's dead on arrival.
0: Right. Right.
1: You have to get them in a place where they can listen to you. So I've used that strategy in hundreds of conversations. I can think of exactly twice that it didn't work. There are exactly two pro-choice people, and they live firmly in my memory, who I was unable to have a conversation with.
0: Yeah. And the body language is the key is being relaxed, not like you're looking, not denoting like you want to fight, mm-hmm. right? And and what about just like fear of conflict? I mean, like, uh, does that trouble you or
1: no problem? I definitely had a fear of conflict yeah. when I first started doing yeah. this. It takes time to get the guts it takes to yeah. go out there and yeah. have these conversations yeah. all the time. And I'd be lying if I told you I didn't get a little bit nervous every yeah. time I do it. When yeah. I go out on a college campus today, I still wake up that morning a little bit nervous. Like, whew, okay, gotta go have some conversations with pro-choice people. That's yeah. normal. Yeah. What matters is how you push through that and overcome that. And yeah. one of the big things I do for my job now is I train pro-life people how to go out and have these conversations. So it's very normal that I go onto a college campus, I train their pro-life club, and then I go out with them and do their very first outreach. So now they're trained, they can continue doing it after I've left, but I'll do their first one with them. And I have never, ever done a first-time outreach with a college club or even a high school club where the students did not say to me afterwards, purchase people are so much more reasonable than I thought they were, Yeah. every time. Like if you create this space where we can have positive, productive conversations, pro people will almost always, I would say I'm at 99.8% of the time with my mm-hmm. two people exception, yeah. pro people will always rise to the occasion. Right. And you can actually have those productive conversations with them, but we have to take the lead right. and help create that environment yeah. for them.
0: I know like they've always say in sports and everything, you know, like a little nerves is good. I think it's, yeah. it's good in preaching because it makes you prepare a little bit and bring some energy and awakens the senses so but the like the fear part of it was there something that was helpful there maybe um just just repeated doing it was that what got you over it or
1: i think there's several things number Mm -hmm. one is definitely repeated doing it there's Mm -hmm. something about doing something scary many times that makes it less scary i mean that's just true psychologically of all things um there is a level of being confident in the techniques that I'm using, having things to fall back on. So when I get nervous, the first thing to go is always my body language. I know that about myself. I've done this enough. That's the place where I'll start to like tense up and look uncomfortable. And so if I can channel my, oh, I'm feeling nervous. This conversation isn't going super well. I try to focus on that one thing. Whatever that thing is for you that you know is your first thing to go, Hmm. that's where you want to focus your attention. And that helps to calm me because i have something to focus on yeah. in my conversation that's not this angry person yeah. and it makes the most visible difference in getting them to calm down cuz that's the first thing that you know is going to start to show them that i'm feeling anxious and i would say the third thing for me is just having space for prayer within my outreach days I take great care to make sure that I pray before and after, but then I also take little breaks throughout the day. And I train all of my college students to do this too. If you've just finished having a conversation with a pro-choice person, whether it's on a college campus or with a family member or whoever it is, taking some time to go kind of debrief on it more or less. I kind of use the word debrief as my overarching uh, word for what I would do because I do several things. Usually I take a minute and I just reflect on the conversation. I think about, how it went, what went well, what I could have done better, that kind of a thing. Like I I analyze it in that Mm -hmm. way. And then I take a few notes about it, particularly for myself because I do this for a living. And I sometimes go and I tell stories later from outreaches Mm -hmm. or I'll use the things that I messed up on to teach other pro-life people. Plenty of the tips that I teach are things that I've done wrong before. And so I'll take some notes and then finally I have to let it go and yeah. that's usually where the prayer piece comes right. in. It's giving that conversation up. You know, I've done the reflection on it. I have like taken what I can to learn from it, written it down so I remember, and then now I have to pray and let it go and let yeah. you know God take over what may happen in that person's life in the next month, two months, years yeah. down the line yeah. that maybe what I said could have an impact, but that's not yeah. my responsibility. And so giving it to him there that kind of sequence helps to alleviate the fear. Because I think a lot of the concern about being like in conversation with pro-choice people is from fear that I'll say the wrong thing or fear that they won't change their mind or they're going to hate me or they're going to be turned off from the pro-life movement because of something I said. Yeah. Or I think it's mostly, at least for me, and I would say for most of the people I train, that's where the fear comes from. It's less from the actual talking to the pro-choice person kind yeah. of thing and more from the, what if I do something wrong? I'm better off keeping my mouth shut. I could uh, I could say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, act the wrong way. And so having yeah. that routine to reflect and then let it go with God, I think has really helped me to get in the rhythm of doing it and to not be nervous, to surrender what yeah. I do.
0: I, I wonder with guys too, because sometimes you see this in the media and religious media too, but it, sometimes the ego. It's like, you know, I I'm not going to win this argument, or I'm not going to look. I've been in that situation. You, you're in a you're in an airport as a you're dressed as a priest, and somebody. I've had this. So someone's sure. challenged me on the pro life, and and that's a, kind of my headspace was. I'm looking really bad here because I don't have snappy comebacks <laughs> and everything. And it's like this ego thing yeah. that uh, I, I think, but I've, I've just noticed this kind of I don't know, anecdotally sometimes, like with women and podcasts and interviews. Oftentimes, to me, the ego doesn't come into play as much. Hmm. With guys, it can kind of come in. I'm coming in to win this argument, and my arguments are going to be better than yours. And everybody's going to see that and recognize that. <laughs> have you dealt with that or working with me I definitely have. Yeah. I
1: think on the whole, I mean, I, I train a lot of different pro-life people, and I'm going to make a broad generalization <laughs> here that is not always true. Yeah. On the whole, there are two different ways that you could potentially kind of stray as a pro-life person, when you're doing outreach with mm-hmm. pro-choice people. Like there's this continuum. Yeah. And on one end is the super argumentative, I am here to win person. Yeah. And on the other end is the, I'm just here to love pro-choice people. And I'm just gonna find common ground. I'm never gonna make a pro-life argument. I'm never gonna say anything <laughs> that challenges them. I'm just gonna be loves and, hu- love and hugs, right, right? right? And on the spectrum, in order to be effective, you have to land in the middle of those two things. Yeah. You have to be able to love them and listen to them. Uh You also have to be able to make effective arguments and push them a little bit when it's necessary. And every pro-life person, like getting that exactly right is incredibly difficult. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I get it right even the majority of the time. But most pro-life people either tend to go on one side or the other. And I Mm -hmm. would say of all the pro-life people I trained, men more than 50% of the time, on the argumentative end of the spectrum. Like that's where they're more likely to stray. Whereas women are more likely to stray (laughs) onto the love and hug side. Uh I would say that I'm different I tend to go with the men, <laughs> like full humility time. Uh, if I have a way that I'm going to go, it's going to be the yeah, ego side, yeah. the I'm here to win. Yeah. And I've seen men that are the same way, yeah. like my old yeah. co-president uh, when I was in college of my pro-life club, um, he joined later, his name yeah. is Joshua. He's actually also on our staff at Equal Rights Institute. Now we yeah. actually have four people from my old college pro-life club that now work full-time in the pro-life movement, two wow. of them at pregnancy centers and two of them in my organization. Um, wow. But anyway, so Joshua was always the opposite of me. He was more on the side of like let's just love pro-choice people and it's not like he didn't make arguments. Both of us don't stray that far from the center but everyone tends to fall on one side or the other and I would say the more ego side is statistically more men at least from what I see whereas the love and hug side tends to be more women. If you're going to stray one way that's more likely where you're going to stray.
0: And when you're talking to a person like a woman maybe especially you kind of intuit like she's motivated by hurt she's been hurt in some way or this is a real personal issue or kind of the, you know, the real kind of feminist ideology woman. Mm -hmm. You kind of pick that up if that's critical.
1: Absolutely. Getting to know where a pro-choice person is coming from is I think the single most important thing I need to do in a conversation. Like that's my very first goal is try to figure out where they're at. And most pro-choice women are coming at it from one of two different places. There's usually a little bit of the other one. But it's like one is their primary, their first piece. And it's usually either some sort of personal experience with abortion, whether they've had one themselves or they know someone who has, their friend, whatever, where they want to be kind of protective of that. They feel like they Mm. have to be pro-choice because they love this person. There's that piece of compassion. Or even more broadly, it can just be compassion for women in general. Like I've never talked to a pro-choice person, male or female, that some piece of why they're pro-choice was about their compassion for women in difficult circumstances. Like, they don't women want women to be stuck in cycles of poverty. They don't want more children being born into poverty. Like, there's always a compassion piece there. And for some people, that's bigger than others. But it's always there somewhere. Yeah. So I would say that's a big driver for a lot of purchase women. And then the other big driver would be more of the feminist ideology. Yeah. The in not having abortion will cause us to be unequal to men. We won't be able to rise up above this place we've been oppressed for years, my body, my choice, all of that kind of of rhetoric there. Mm -hmm. And so I would say most purchase women, one of those two things is at the forefront and usually the other one is the secondary piece. Everybody has crossover. My job is just to kind of come up with more or less what's the order of priority for them? What are all the different things going on in their head and how do they weigh those? Yeah.
0: Yeah. What do you tell people about how to dress, men and women? They're sitting at the table on a college campus, is there any As rules normally for as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: luckily for all the people listening to this, you can't see me. I'm five one. Okay, I am very short. I look like a high school student. When I was in college, I uh, was a vocal music education major, which means I student taught, and I student taught in a high school. And the only way that I would not get stopped by other teachers in the high school because they thought I was a student, is if I wore heels and my lanyard of teacher keys every day, (laughs) which I did. Like I would go to the bathroom in Uh, my very dressy outfit with my lanyard of teacher keys because I look like a high school student. Okay, it's just the reality. And so, I can blend in on a college campus beautifully. Like no one knows that I'm not a college freshman. And, but I will, I will train all of my students. If you're out there having conversations, you want to look like them because there's something incredibly psychologically powerful about seeing common ground and common values in a person who disagrees with you. If you can come to see someone who you thought was on the other side of whatever the issue is, like, I don't care what we're talking about. But if they start to be seen as more like you, you can see similarities, even just as superficial as they dress like me. They go to the same school. There's this thing happening in the back of your mind where you have to justify that. You have to say how could someone who is so like me in this way be so horrible (laughs) like i thought that they were this crazy person on the other side and so the more you can do to dress like a college student like today is not the day when you're outreach tabling to wear your favorite catholic t-shirt or your favorite pro-life t-shirt it's a great day to wear your favorite green bay packers t-shirt shout out to all my packer fans i'm from wisconsin like Things that are going to make people on your campus be like, oh, I like that person. Like, they also like football or anything that you can relate to them on where you're breaking down stereotypes. Yeah. So they can't
0: stereotype you. Right. They can't stereotype me.
1: And they think that they used to think that I was way different from them. And now they're discovering little itty bitty ways that we're the same it humanizes me. Like, I think the pro-choice movement has done an incredibly good job for many years of trying to dehumanize pro-life people. Make them out to be these old white men. Yeah. And when you see there is a young person or really whatever age you are, if you are of a certain age and you're talking to another person of the same age, you have this opportunity to make an impact where they're like, oh, there's someone like me. They think like me. They're the same age as me. They do the same things as me. They wear the same kind of things as me. But they are pro-life right what or they are catholic we are whatever like i have a whole speech at eri that i give just on these kinds of practical dialogue tips that are very popular in catholic audiences because we can talk about tons of different issues Mm. any political social religious issue that you're talking to people on the other side about these kinds of practical tips apply because it doesn't matter what you're evangelizing on you can make a better impact if you're using practical tips Getting to see seen as like people pointing out common ground, bringing their walls down through clarification questions—all the same kinds of things are going to apply.
0: All right, I could talk to you for another hour, but <laughs> but thank you so much, Emily, You're for so checking us.